0: to the Calvary Chapel Naples weekly sermon podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Lord, I thank you for uh, the time that we have now this morning to go through your word, and I thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, thank you for the gift of salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And in His name we pray. Amen. Amen. So a couple weeks ago when I was last here, we were in chapter 21, and I know there's a lot of you who weren't here, so we're just, I'm just going to start all over again. Nah. But I will hit a couple of high points in chapter 21. All right, In chapter 21, it starts off with Jesus coming with His disciples into Jerusalem. Now we know, and Jesus knew, that this was the last Time. Now, he'd done this many times over his life, but this was the last time that he was coming into Jerusalem. Now, the disciples should have known it because he told them on multiple occasions that I'm going to go, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be charged falsely, I'm going to be mocked, beat, spit on. Um, and eventually crucified on a cross until I'm dead, but then three days later, I will rise from the dead. You know, that's so interesting. And Remember, we talked about the fact that Jesus never actually talked about his death without also talking about his resurrection and life because to Jesus, he wants us to remember that death here is not the end. And for the believer, we go from this place into paradise forever with Jesus, Amen. What a great reminder. Every time he talks about his death, he talks about his life after. So we see Jesus now. He is on his way. You know, again, he knows exactly what's going to happen, and yet he is pressing forward. He will not be deterred. He's going. You know, at one point, he probably most likely had to cross over what's called the brook. Kidron. It was just a a stream that kind of ran outside of the city, but it was a stream that had the drain from the temple connected to it. So as they were slaughtering just hundreds and thousands of lambs and, and birds, the blood would drain out from the altar into this brook and down this brook. And it might have even been, as he was stepping over it, stained black from the blood that had gone down this so many times, Jesus knowing that he actually was going to Jerusalem to shed his blood for the sins of all. Man, can you imagine taking a step over that brook, knowing that your blood was soon to be spilt and shed? Well, as he comes in, this is what's known as the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday, uh, the celebration of Jesus riding in. And it's so unique in in many ways. One of the ways that makes it so unique is this is the first time that Jesus allows himself to be worshiped as the coming King. All the other times that he would do things and people would want to grab him and make him King. He would either, um, you know, make them forget, or he would say, don't tell anybody. But this time was different. This time he was like, yes, You worship me as the king that I am coming into the city as it was prophesied. In fact, the Pharisees come to Jesus as his disciples are calling out and saying that he's the Messiah, the one who was to come. And the Pharisees come and they say, teacher, tell your students to be quiet. And Jesus says, what they're saying is so true that if they were to be quiet, the rocks themselves would declare it. What also makes this day so unique and important is that it was prophesied to the day that this would happen. Um, 445 BC, a decree by King Artaxerxes was given for the Jews to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. Daniel, It said in in Daniel's uh, prophecy about the return of the Messiah that it would be 483 years from the decree that was made to rebuild Jerusalem that the Messiah would come. Sir Robert Anderson, who was one of the leaders of Scotland Yard at the time, a um, hundred years ago, read that, figured out, because you can see in Nehemiah chapter 2, it tells you the day, the year, the month, when he made that decree. The 483 years, based on a 360-day calendar, would be 108, 100 73,880 days that the Messiah would return to the city of Jerusalem. Guess what day that was? This day. This very day. We see that people there was a great multitude that were before him and that were behind him. And as he was riding in on a colt, the foal of a donkey, also prophesied, by the way, they recognized something in him. They said, this guy is special, not just because he's done miraculous things, but they knew that he was the one who was prophesied because they were cutting down palm branches and waving these palm branches before him and throwing their garments on the ground, both of which were signs of the people recognizing that he was a king who was coming in. And we looked at that. At last uh, two weeks ago that the palm branches were kind of a, a throwback to the Maccabees' revolt and, the, and the, Jude, the, the Maccabee family coming in and cleansing the temple and them waving palm branches, recognizing the defeat over a foreign oppression and throwing their garments on the ground. Um, you can read about that when um, Jehu was anointed king over Ahab to uh, take over, and when his men recognized that he had been anointed as king, they took off their garments and they put them on the ground. And so the people with Jesus are recognizing that he is actually the coming king, at least what the one, what, something that they were hoping for, and they were waving palm branches and throwing down their garments in recognition of him as a king coming in. But as they're waving their palm branches and they're leading Jesus in, they start headed off maybe to the palace or the the Roman garrison. And Jesus on his donkey turns, heads for the temple, his father's house. Completely unexpected because Jesus says, I'm not coming in to conquer this oppressor. I'm coming in to conquer the oppressor that is sin, the bigger oppressor in your life. I'm sure they were surprised because that's not what they wanted, but it's what they needed. So Jesus gets to the temple, and what does he find? The entire courtyard of the Gentiles, the only place where Gentiles were allowed to go to be able to access God, was filled with shops and booths that sold sacrificial animals for an exorbitant price and for money-changing tables where you had to change your money into temple shekels in order to make an offering. And not only were they um, having commerce, but it was corrupt. It was filled with deception and they were cheating people. And so this place, the only place where Gentiles could come and gain access to God was now filled with noise and shops and smells and people cheating one another. And Jesus comes in and nothing we see in the Bible makes Jesus more upset that when people are denied access to God. Remember when they wanted to bring the little children to Jesus and the disciples were like, no, he's too important. Keep them away. And he was like, no, let the little children come to me. He was distressed greatly, it says, because they were not allowing the children to come to him. This bugs him so bad. He goes into the temple and he starts cleansing the temples, throwing over the tables. And you just imagine like birds are flying all over the place and they're running all over. It's just chaos. But the result was what? A temple that had been cleansed so that the blind and the lame could be brought to him and be healed. Do you know this wasn't the first time that he did this? Right as he started his public ministry, three years before, he went and found that the temple courtyard was filled with corruption. So he goes in and he drove them all out. Now this happens. Guess what? It's three years later and all the corruption is back in again. And I don't actually believe that the first time he drove them out and the temple was empty and the day that he left, they all came back in again. I think it, one booth at a time came back in subtly. Little by little, the corruption started to refill the temple courtyard. I think that's how it works in our lives as well, isn't it? I mean, we recognize all of a sudden there's something in our life. Oh my goodness, I, how did I get so bad? How did this get to be so bad in my life? And we go to the Lord and we confess it and graciously it says in his word that when we f- confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then we're clean. But then... It suddenly starts to creep back in, doesn't it? You know, and it's not actually the fault of the thing. We let it in. Little by little, we let it in. But guess what? And here's the good news. Every time we recognize it, we go to him and we say, Lord, I confess that I've let this sin slip back into my life again. Will you forgive me? And he says, yes, I will. I will. Because I said I would in my word, that I would forgive you each and every time you came and confessed it to me. And then have you ever done that, like for the 17th time for the same thing, and think, I can't believe that he can even, Lord, I'm a wretch. I can't believe that you could even, how could you forgive me? Do you know why we question that? Because we can't do it, can we? Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, When my brother sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? Seven. Because Peter was thinking he was something because it was only required three times. So Peter is saying, Lord, twice as many plus one. It's the plus one, I think, that made him feel really superior. And Jesus says, no, Peter, seven times 70 times. 490 times. So carry a notebook with you all the time. So I would turn to the Tanil page. We're like, oh, 430 times. More times than you could keep track. He said, every time. Every time. Jesus says, forgive every time because that's what you've received. Forgiveness every time you ask. The next day, he's coming in, and he sees the fig tree. And he goes, ooh, yummy figs. And he goes over, and he looks in, and there's plenty of leaves. It looks like there should be figs there. And he looks in, and guess what? No figs. So Jesus says, curse you, fig tree. You'll never produce fruit ever again. And by the next day, it's completely withered away, dead. And the disciples are like, oh, my goodness. What did he just get the tree? But there was a point you see, okay, yeah, it was spring, and a lot of people are like, "Oh, there's no figs on a spring on a you know on a tree in spring. They are harvested in August, and that's true." But there is a first fruit harvest on a fig tree that happens in late spring, and those figs are better than the late August figs. You know why? Because they grow on the previous year's growth, which makes them better and stronger. But Jesus goes to pick those figs, and there's no fig trees, and he says, "You're not a fig tree. You're a hypocrite tree." because you appear to be one thing and you're not that. You are a fig tree. To be a fig tree, you must have figs. This fig tree has no figs, so it's not a real fig tree. He says to this tree and to everyone listening that you appear to be something, but you're not that thing. That's what a hypocrite is. A hypocrite is someone who says, I'm this, but they're really not. That's gonna come up again. He curses the fig tree as a sign to them to say, look, I care about the fruit that's inside. Yeah, lots of leaves. Lots of leaves. You know what the he saw the fig tree, it had plenty of leaves on it, and so he thought there were figs on it. You know, the leaves were actually concealing the fact that there was corruption inside. You know what that reminds me of? You remember Adam and Eve? They, you know, lived in this really great place. There was no death, lots of you know, good things to eat. They were told, here's a tree, don't eat of it. Don't this one tree, don't eat of it. Right? Isn't that how it works? You say to your kids, you can play with all these other things, don't touch this. Where do they go? Well, they ate of the tree. All of a sudden they were understood that there was, well, they understood they were naked. All of a sudden. And so what did they cover up their rebellion and sin with? Fig leaves. Fig leaves. If you have fig leaves, if you have a fig tree at your house, just cut it down right now. Get rid of the goats with them weird eyes. Jesus, we ended this section at verses 21 and 22 where he says, to them, and kind of in response to their question about the fig tree, he says, surely I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. I never moved a mountain myself, but I have faith. You know what Jesus is saying right in that section is, if you believe in me and who I am, things that are impossible to you will be possible to me. The word impossible is so cool because if you look at how it's spelled, to us it says impossible, but if God were to say it, he says, I'm possible. (laughs) Things that seem impossible. Do you know what? For some reason, we always kind of attach that to be like, oh, well, like someone who doesn't have a limb suddenly regrows a limb. Wouldn't that be cool? And that would be cool. But what are the impossible things in our life that God says are possible to me? Do you ever have somebody in your family who you've just talked about, your faith, and they're just like, no, 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 I don't. you're a fool, I don't want to listen to it. It seems like I will never break into that person, they're, they're never going to come around. And God says, but to me, it's possible. He then says in verse 22, and whatever things you ask in prayer, believe you will receive. I do love that verse. But what that verse isn't saying is all you have to do is pray it in my name and believe and you'll get whatever it is that you want. It doesn't say that. In Greek, this is what it says. If you believe in me, God, you will be able to accept what you are offered. That's a literal translation. You will accept what is offered, which means that when you pray to God for something desperately, and he says in answer to that, no, you still believe. You say, I believe God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do because he, the word says he is faithful and just and worthy and righteous and loving. So when he does not answer my prayer in the way that I want him to, I still believe in him because I'm able to accept what is offered. That's what Jesus said there. Now, this is where we start. (laughs) Now, when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him. As he was teaching, he said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave this authority to you? You see, he goes into the temple. This is amazing to me because he knows that these people want to kill him. And yet every day he goes back into the temple, not hiding, right out into the temple courtyard to preach and to teach. And while he's there, it says that the chief priests come to him and they want to know, by what authority did you do these things? By what authority did you cleanse the temple courtyard of all the corruption that was going on? Now, because of their position, they actually did have the right to ask him that. By what authority do you do this? But they weren't genuinely asking him. Their motives were not true. They were challenging Jesus. They wanted to know by what authority do you do the things that you do? You remember last uh, 2 weeks ago we looked at the idea that even if they believed that he was the Messiah, the one prophesied who was to come, that they believed that that person was going to come and free them from Roman oppression and set up a new government, which would mean that they would lose their position because they knew that Jesus was not their biggest fan. So whether they believed he was who he said he was or whether he wasn't, they did not want him there. So for them to come and ask by what authority is a challenge. Remember, there was a great multitude that followed him, so very likely while he's teaching, there is a great multitude listening to him in the temple. And so now this exchange is happening in front of a lot of people. Now look at this, verse 24, Jesus answered. So this is pretty cool because Jesus had a great multitude. He was teaching. He stops teaching so that he can answer their question. I was reading this week in my own devotional time in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, and I'm thinking that maybe Jesus was doing this. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer each one. I like that verse because it's a reminder of, number one, answer with salt. Salt is the truth, the right things to say, but grace is how to say it. You can have the truth and punch somebody in the face with the truth. It's not going to be effective. When he says, <clears throat> say it with salt and say it with grace, it is, salt is you know what to say. You know the truth. Deliver the truth. But do it with grace. Chuck Smith used to say, grace received is grace bestowed. Right? That's what we're called to do. So Jesus answers them. He says, I will ask you one thing. Which, if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? Now that is a clever question. Jesus is very, very clever, but he is Jesus. And so they reason among themselves. Now, I, I, this is how I imagine it because I, you know I'm visual, and Jesus asking the question, and all the chief priests they all kind of huddle together, and like, all right, this is what we. If we say it's of heaven, but if we say it's, (laughs) they say this, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? Well, what was John the Baptist saying that Jesus, that they're afraid that he's going to say, why didn't you believe them? Well, you know the story of John the Baptist. He comes, he's out in the Jordan River. He's baptizing people. like Lots of people are coming to him. um, And they come to John, and guess what? They ask him the exact same question. Who are you, and by whose authority do you do this baptizing? And he says, I'm the one that was prophesied, the voice and the, the one in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. And they're like, so are you Isaiah? And he says, no. And they're like, well, are you the prophet? And he says, no. They say, are you the Christ? And he says, no. And they said, then by whom do you do this? And he says, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you who you do not know. He is coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. And then the very next day, he sees Jesus and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They say, if we say of heaven he's going to say then why didn't you believe him when he pointed to me and said that I'm the one that takes away the sin of the world no 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 we don't want it. we're not we're not going to say we're not going to say of heaven but then it says but if we say from men we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. And they're like, oh man, we're really stuck because if we say of heaven, then we have to admit that he is Jesus. But if we say of men, then everybody's gonna be mad at us because they think John was a great prophet and we're really stuck because we don't know where, our, where we should go, towards Jesus or towards the crowd. Where are you? Where are you? Are you ready to say, I'm with Jesus? Is that your identity? Or is your identity so wrapped up in the crowd? So wrapped up in I'm just really afraid of what people will think if I pray at the table at lunchtime today. If I wear a button that says, ask me about Jesus. I'm afraid of what the crowd will say if i do this say that that's where they were that's was what was directing them through this whole thing so they brilliantly come up with this answer we don't know these are the spiritual leaders of the people the upper echelon we don't know so jesus says neither will i tell you by what authority i do these things He says, well, then I'm not going to tell you. But does he though? He does actually. See, not in the way that they were looking, but he comes back now and he's going to tell them by whose authority. It's by his own that was given to him by the heavenly father. So he tells them a parable. But what do you think? A man had two sons and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not go. But afterwards, he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said to him, the first. And you know, it's very funny. It's like they couldn't answer the first question. And they felt stupid because they're like, we don't know. We know, but we don't know. So he asked them another one like, oh, we know that one. The first. They don't see it, do they? He's talking about them. Then Jesus said to them, "Surely I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterwards relent and believe in him. See, what he says is, uh, to the parable... And, and you know in case you forgot parables don't really happen parables are an example a heavenly example of some spiritual reality that Jesus is trying to convince them of and so he says in this parable the first son are the harlots and the tax collectors those who were told you need to live a righteous holy life and they said no but then heard John's message of repentance and then they said yes on the other hand the The chief priests and the Pharisees were those who said, why, yes, we will live a holy, righteous life. On the outside, but on the inside, they were filled with corrupt, dead man's bones. So when they heard the message of John saying repent, they said, no, thank you. And Jesus says the harlots and the tax collectors go into the kingdom of heaven because they repented of their sin rather than you who have a holy exterior but a filthy, unrighteous interior. I don't know about you, but I'd rather be one of them harlot tax collector guys. You know, what? regardless of what I look like on the outside, I know that I've been forgiven because Jesus died on the cross for my sin and I accepted that gift rather than being an outwardly righteous holy person but on the inside dead and corrupt then he says this here another parable there was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to the vine dressers and went into a far country. And when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vin- vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants and beat one and killed one and stoned another. And again he sent another uh, other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes. What will he do to the vine dressers? Now, right away, these guys are listening. They're hearing a good story. They think they've got it all figured out because they come right back in and they said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and, and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits of their seasons. Well, they had that really quick, didn't they? They're like, that guy's going to come back and he's going to destroy these evil vine dressers for what they did to his servants and to kill his son. And then they're going to give the vineyard to somebody who's really going to produce fruit. And I, you know, I think that Jesus, again, must be like, holy smokes, you don't get it. So in case you're a little lost, let me walk you through this just for a second. Here, this is a parable. It has a spiritual meaning. So when we look at this and we say, there was a landowner, who is the landowner? God. He had a vineyard. Who's the vineyard? That is the, pe- the Hebrews, the Israelites. That's his people. He leased it to vine which meant he put men in leadership positions over these people. Those are the high chief or the chief priests and the Pharisees. The Pharisees in this story were not producing the fruit that he required of the vineyard. And so, when he sent servants who are his prophets throughout the Old Testament, they came to the people and the leaders of the people beat them and killed them. So much so that even in Acts chapter 11, when Stephen is pulled up in front of the Sanhedrin to make a defense for himself, he says to them, How many of the prophets have your descendants killed? This is what they did. Then last of all, his son was sent to them saying, they'll respect my son. God then sent Jesus to his people and they took him and and we, we know the story. We've read it before. They kill him. Now here's the crazy part. In the parable, you see in verse 38, but when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. What does that mean of the vine dressers? They knew and recognized the son. They knew who he was. Jesus says, You know who I am. You cannot deny. You know who I am. But you think that if you get rid of me, you'll continue in possession of my vineyard. Who, who, in what world? would they kill the heir and expect to somehow maintain ownership of the vineyard even if this was a literal story would that ever happen no no what would make them think that ah pride arrogant pride if we kill this guy then it's all ours They had seen Jesus do miraculous things, and yet somehow in their twisted mind, they thought we could still just kill this guy, who, by the way, has already raised three other people from the dead. We'll just kill him. They said, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease the vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to Him the fruits of their seasons. They're blinded to the truth. They're blinded by their own sin. Do you know there's another very familiar story in 2 Samuel? Maybe you heard of it David and Bathsheba. Did you ever hear that story before? Did you know? Maybe you didn't know this, but did you know that the man that David kills, Bathsheba's husband Uriah, wasn't just some random dude in the army? David had 30 men of valor, close in, mighty men. Uriah was one of those 30 men, close in. And David one morning is up and he looks down and he sees this woman on a rooftop showering and he says, oh, nice. And he sends men over to get her and they're like, oh, that's Uriah's husband. I think they said it like, oh no, David, that's, that's Uriah's wife. And David thinks, oh, Eh, bring her anyway. <gasps> and David comes and he lies with her and she ends up getting pregnant. She sends a message to David and says, David, I'm pregnant. So this is what David says. I'll make this right. I'll go and ask for forgiveness. Um, I'll admit the whole thing because right now is the time to do that. That's not what he does, actually. What he says is, I will cover up this sin with lies because that always works, doesn't it? So David calls for Uriah to be pulled back from the front and he says, Uriah, hey, how's it going? Tell me about the battle. What's going on? Because you know, we're friends. And so Uriah gives him a report and he's like, hey, you know what? While you're here, why don't you go home and visit with your wife in hopes that When she's found to be pregnant, everyone will just assume that it was Uriah. And Uriah, being an honorable man and trying to keep himself undefiled for battle, sleeps on the stairs of the palace with the rest of the soldiers who are in town. And David gets up the next morning thinking, I guess I took care of that, and finds out that Uriah never went home. And he's like, great. Now I should just come clean and tell the truth, right? No, more lies. So he calls Uriah in to have dinner with him that night. And they're having a grand old time, and he just keeps filling his glass and filling his glass and filling his glass. And he gets Uriah drunk at dinner, and he's like, for sure this time he'll go home to Bathsheba. And he doesn't. He stays on the steps of the palace. And David was like, well, you've left me no choice. I'm going to have to have you killed. Because that was apparently the only option that David had. See, David could have at any point confessed, and it would have been, if he had confessed at the first place, it would have been messy and bad, but it would have been better than where he was, you know, but every step of the way, every lie just got him in deeper and deeper and deeper, and so he takes out a scroll on a paper, and he writes to Joab, the leader of the army, and he says, when Uriah comes back up, put him on the front line, in a really heated battle. And when it gets really bad, pull the army back and leave them on the front line so that he's killed. And then I can marry Bathsheba and then nobody will know. And he writes it all in a scroll. He rolls it up and he hands it to Uriah to deliver to Joab. Since he's going back to the front line, he carried his own death warrant back to the front line. David seems completely cool with all of this, by the way. Uriah gives it to Joab. Joab reads it. He puts David, uh, puts Uriah on the front line. They go into a very heated battle. And just as he had hoped, they pulled back. And Joab and every man on the front line was killed. Uriah and every man on the front line was killed. So David's sin not only cost the life of a good friend of his, but every man that served with him on the front line to cover up his sin with Uriah. Now, right after that, the prophet Nathan comes to David because he knows what's going on. And he says, David, there's a guy. He's poor. He's got one lamb. He has raised that lamb from when it was little. He lives with the family. He eats their food. He drinks from his cup. They hold it. They sleep in the same bed. It's just such a cute little lamb. And, um, and then there's this rich guy, and he has like hundreds and hundreds of lambs. And so a visitor came to the rich guy one day, and this rich guy said, well, I'm not going to take one of my lambs. I'm going to take this guy's one lamb. And he took that one lamb, and he slaughtered it and prepared it as a meal for his friend. And it says that David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, that man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold from the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan looks at David and says, David, you're that man. And David is broken. And he falls down and he calls out to the Lord and he says, I have sinned against you. And the Lord forgives him, but there were consequences. These men hear the same story. They hear that Jesus is the one who comes with salvation. And rather than to say, we are the wicked ones, they want to kill him. They could have fallen down and repented like David did, but they chose not to. He says to them, have you never read in scripture, which they love to hear? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Do you want to know what's interesting? He's quoting from Psalm 118, which is actually the same psalm that everyone was declaring as he was riding in uh, on Palm Sunday. They were all saying, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In that same psalm, right before that are these verses saying, the stone which the builder rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus says to these guys, I'm the cornerstone that you all have rejected, as it was said in the psalm. And therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to the nation bearing the fruit of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but whomever it falls on, uh, whoever it falls on will be grind, ground to powder. You know, throughout the Old Testament, the Lord God is referred to as a rock several places. We even see in the story of Moses um, and the, the Jews as they're exiting out of uh, Egypt, that they get to a place early on and there's no water. And they're like, why did you bring us out here? Why did you free us from captivity and slavery to die in the desert, it was so much better back there. And so Moses goes to God and he says, God, i what am I supposed to do? There's no water. And so God says, go to that rock and strike that rock. And from that rock, water will gush out and it will supply all of the needs of the people. And so Moses goes out with his staff and he goes over and he strikes the rock and water comes gushing out so much so that it provides enough water for three million people plus livestock. Forty years later, Moses, still with these people, find themselves in a dry, arid place, and they complain, there's no water. You brought us out here to die. I think Moses must have been like, I'm going to... You want to die? But he goes to God and he says, God, they're complaining again about no water. And you know what God says? Moses... They're thirsty. Oh, man. I'm so glad God is more gracious than I am. <laughs> he says, Moses, they're thirsty. Speak to the rock. And, and so Moses grabs his staff, and goes out, and he not so graciously says to the people, You pains in my neck. Oh, that's a paraphrase, but that's basically what he says. And he strikes the rock the rock that God said to speak to. He strikes the rock, and guess what happens? Water gushes out, and it provides water for all of the people, and that is the gracious God that we serve. But then he said, Moses, come over here a minute. Remember when I said, speak to the rock? And what did you do? Well, Lord, You know, I I struck the rock. I mean, I know you said, speak to it, but I struck it. But look, it still worked. And he's like, yeah, because I'm God and I'm gracious. But you misrepresented me to the people. I said, strike the rock. We know in this story. And you know, as a consequence, you know what happens. God says, Moses, you can't go into the promised land with the people. Which sounds bad to us, but I think Moses was like, yes. (laughs) Freedom! Freedom! smacking the rock. (laughs) The thing is, you see, this rock is a picture of Jesus. See, God said, I'm giving you a rock that's going to be struck, and from it will flow living water once. The next time you need that living water, you don't strike the rock, you speak to the rock. If it's any other way, and if we present it any other way, we've misrepresented God as Moses did. We speak to the Lord. We don't have to strike. He had to be only struck one time. He only went to the cross and died one time. He isn't crucified over and over and over again. He did it once. He shed his blood once, and it was enough because he was perfect, and he lived a sinless life so that when he shed his blood one time, it covered all sin, Do you believe that? That's what it takes to be saved. Do you believe that? We don't strike the rock. We don't crucify Jesus over and over again. We simply speak to him, Lord, forgive me. Lord, I confess, forgive me. And he says, I do. I do forgive you. But Lord, it's so bad. It's the 17th time this week. I forgive you. Lord, you don't know what a wretch I am. Yes, I do. And I forgive you. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken is a very interesting phrase. Broken in Greek, it means shattered or crushed together. Together. It's like you fall on it and you break apart, but something about the stone holds it together so that it's not scattered all over. It's broken, yes, but it's together. It's a very cool word that says, when you fall on the stone, which is Jesus, you are broken, but you are not destroyed. You are held together by him. But on whomever it falls will be ground into powder. Ground into powder in Greek says scattered like chaff. We've talked about this. Chaff is the husk around wheat. To get at the wheat, they would use a fan or a blanket and they would throw the wheat up in the air and the chaff would separate from the wheat. And because chaff is very dry and light, when the wind blows, it separates and blows it away. And he says, if you fall on Jesus if you come to him and confess and say, Lord, forgive me, you will be broken but held together by him. But if you allow your life to go on without him and the stone falls on you in judgment, you will be separated like the chaff. John the Baptist says of Jesus, here he is even now, the winnowing fan is in his hand, ready to separate the wheat From the chaff. So Jesus is saying to them that if you go your whole life and you never fall on the stone of Jesus and be broken but held together by Him, in the end you will be scattered like the chaff because the stone, Jesus, will fall on you. Man if you're here today and you haven't fallen on the stone of Jesus Christ, you need to do that. And don't sit here and say, well, you know, and I've I've heard about this before, and at some point, you know, I'm going to do that. I'm totally going to. I mean, why wouldn't I? I totally want to go to heaven and all that. Just not yet. I'm still young. I'm only 53. (laughs) That's young. I see, I could tell the audience is like, oh, you're all like 70 or something, because you're like, yeah, that's that's But here's the thing. You can be young and still die tomorrow. Still stand before God in judgment and him say, I never knew you. We don't know when that's going to happen. You know the verse in the Bible that says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be when the Lord calls his church home. Do you know that doesn't, that's not talking about how wicked or evil it was. That's actually talking about the timing It says that people were eating and drinking and getting married and going to work and they had no idea when it came upon them. And that's what the Bible says about the time when Jesus calls home his church. He says, you will be going about your day just like any other day, completely unaware and bam, like that, he's gonna call us home. Could be now. Now, I don't I hope that he does it one time when I say that. Just, just it would be so cool. So cool. Look, we laugh at that, but it's very serious. You could be left behind in the blink of an eye if you've not fallen on the rock of Jesus Christ and become broken. I beg you to not go another day without calling him out and asking him to forgive you of your sins and to be born again, as the Bible says. Now, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he was speaking of them. Geniuses! They're sitting there going, wait a minute. Wait a minute, you're talking about us. We're not fools. But... When they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude. See, what, was, what did they want to do? They had just heard him say, you can either fall on me and be crushed and held together, or you can not accept me. You can be softened to me or harden up your heart to me. You have the choice still is what he's saying to them. And they said, we choose hardened hearts. Because they wanted to take him and kill him. But what stopped them? Once again, the fear of what people would say and think. That's what stopped them. Thankfully, this time, because Jesus still had a few more days of work to do. Which way will you go? A softened heart toward Jesus, or a hardened heart with the crowd? It's your choice. Let's pray. Father God, I just do thank you so much, Lord, that you even made a way for us to become united with your son, joint heirs, so that we might spend eternity with you in heaven. What a day that I long for, Lord. Thank you. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here today that's not done that, Lord, maybe they don't even even understand what I'm saying. Lord, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would speak to them. Help them to understand. Help them to know. Lord, strip away anything that's ever taught them that they have to clean themselves up in order to come to you, Lord. Know that you love them so much that you accept them exactly as they are, but that you love them so much that you would never leave them in that state, Lord. Lord God, I pray for each one of us here that we would be reminded of what we've heard today. Lord, that we would let our speech be salty but grace-filled. That we would love on one another and love on those who don't know you, Lord, remembering that, uh, Lord, that maybe they've been deceived. Thank you, Jesus, for your word and for your, for your sacrifice. In your name we pray.